Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and you are listening to a special episode that's part of Conway's Corner Crossover. Hashtag Conway Xover. If you haven't heard, Conway's Corner Crossover is, in one part, a celebration of the comics work of Jerry Conway. That's pretty easy to celebrate. The man has written a lot of outstanding comics over the years, including Black Canary's first published origin story. I covered that back in episode one of Flowers and Fishnets. That's one of my favorite Black Canary stories, but Jerry wrote plenty of great Canary moments in Justice League of America and World's Finest. He's also created hundreds of characters over the last 40 years. He created the Punisher for Marvel Comics, and he wrote the death of Gwen Stacy. For DC, he created Firestorm and half of the characters and villains appearing on The Flash and Arrow. He also created Slipknot and the Batman villain Killer Croc, both of whom are set to appear in next year's Suicide Squad movie. The man's a legend, and celebrating his contribution to comics doesn't have to be a special event. We could just call it Tuesday. But that's only part of the reason for this crossover. The other is an effort by members of the podcast community to bring attention to the issue of creator equity. If you don't know what that means, don't worry. I didn't either, until Jerry explained it himself. I'll try to put it in the proper context for those of you listening, but you should really hear it from the man himself. Go to jerryconway.tumblr.com and find the post dated April 29th, titled, Who Created Caitlin Snow? I'll be sure to include a direct link to that post in the show notes for this episode on my Flowers and Fishnets blog. Then... After you read the post, download the Fire and Water podcast, episode 125. Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag conducted a terrific interview with Jerry, and he offers some explanations and some clarifications for his argument. It's great stuff. For now, though, I'll try to give you an idea of what this issue boils down to. Caitlin Snow is the most recent version of the supervillain Killer Frost, appearing in DC Comics. The same character also appears as one of the stars of the CW television series, The Flash. Except, as of the time of this recording, she has not turned into Killer Frost yet. She's just another nuclear physicist working at Star Labs. Side note, only in the superhero genre could anyone ever be referred to as just a nuclear physicist. So how hard could it be to answer Jerry's question? Well, a little bit harder if you deliberately don't want an answer. See, Jerry created the first Killer Frost. The Caitlin Snow version, introduced in a comic written by Sterling Gates, is clearly derivative of Jerry's creation. Whether you consider Caitlin Snow on The Flash a version of Killer Frost or something different, you have to agree that she was created by either Conway or Gates. But DC Entertainment doesn't see it that way. 
Based on creator contracts signed before I was born, certain writers and artists working for DC Comics would be owed additional compensation when their creations were used in other media, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, and video games. As of now, DC Entertainment isn't compensating anyone for Caitlin Snow's appearances on The Flash. They told Jerry that he's not owed anything because Caitlin Snow on the TV show isn't Killer Frost. But they also told Sterling Gates that he's not owed anything because Caitlin Snow is a derivative character based on Killer Frost. This type of both sides argument would be laughable if people weren't getting screwed over. I don't want to accuse DC of soulless greed, but they are a corporation. And corporations are greedy. I say that without judgment. They need to be greedy. That's how they survive and how the economy grows. To a certain extent. It's a logical syllogism. If DC is a corporation and corporations are greedy, then DC is greedy. That's how they seem to be behaving, at least. And Jerry's Tumblr post thrust a big ol' spotlight on this greedy behavior. So much so that DC chief executives Dan DiDio and Jeff Johns reached out to him almost immediately and tried to smooth some proverbial waters. DC has since said that they're trying to improve their creator equity policy to reward more of their talent for using characters in other media. For his part, Jerry sounded optimistic after talking with DiDio and Johns. I remain a little more skeptical. It's hard for me to imagine DC paying anyone out of moral obligation when after 75 years they still only recognize one half of the creative force that brought Batman into this world. But this episode isn't about trashing DC entertainment. Remember, this is supposed to be a celebratory event. And that's what I'm going to do after this quick break. I'm going to celebrate two stories from World's Finest, issues 245, written by Jerry Conway, starring the Emerald Archer and the Blonde Bombshell. Don't go far. Last episode, I kicked off the start of the world's finest comics dollar issue era by reviewing the Black Canary and Green Arrow stories in issue 244. Those stories saw Dinah and Ollie fighting Slingshot and the Rainbow Archer in continuous chapters drawn by Mike Nasser and Terry Austin. This time, we're picking up with world's finest issue 245. The book was cover dated June slash July of 1977, but thanks to Mike's amazing world of DC Comics, we know the actual on-sale date was March 14th, 1977. The issue was edited by Denny O'Neill and featured an awesome Neil Adams cover, showing Superman and Batman fighting an army of green Martians, with John Jones tied up in the background. The lead feature in this comic naturally starred the Man of Steel and the Cape Crusader, along with the Manhunter from Mars, illustrated by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, and written by the notorious, the zany Bob Haney. 
and I'm calling them out now. If Rob and Shag don't review this story with Diablo Frank on a future episode of the Fire and Water podcast, I'm going to go buck wild. In the meantime, just like the previous issue, Black Canary and Green Arrow each get a 10-page feature of their own that lead into each other. This time, Green Arrow's story comes first. It's a tale called The Man-Bear Stalks at Midnight, written by Jerry Conway, drawn by Mike Nasser, and inked by Terry Austin. We open with Green Arrow in the Catskill Mountains. He's come to New York following a lead on Slingshot, the villain from the last issue. What Green Arrow finds, instead, are stories of a wild bear terrorizing a ski lodge nearby. So Ali went out hunting, but the creature found him first. The animal attacks, displaying uncanny strength and cleverness. But this is no ordinary bear. It walks upright like a man. It has humanoid arms and legs, but the massive torso and the pronounced muzzle of a bear. While it does strike first against Green Arrow, it doesn't appear to want to kill him. It turns its back on him and starts to leave, when Ali fires one of his trick arrows that wraps around the man-bear like a steel clamp. But all the man-bear has to do is flex, and the steel clamp is shattered. That is hardly the most impressive feat. The man-bear turns toward Green Arrow and speaks. I don't want to hurt you. This ain't your fight, so beat it. Understand? Then the creature walks off, leaving Green Arrow startled and confused. Ali returns to the lodge, where he and Dinah are staying. He complains about losing the man-bear and not really having any idea what the creature even is, and about his whole reason for coming here turning out to be a bust. He leans on Dinah, telling her he doesn't know what he'd do without her. Dinah tells him he might have to figure out, because she's thinking of getting a new job. Apparently the flower shop isn't bringing in the business, and it's draining her savings. Ali offers to help support her financially, which is the last thing she wants to hear. She doesn't want charity from Ali. She wants a new career, an identity of her own. She storms off, and Ali assumes she'll come back whenever her womanly problem dissipates. Green Arrow heads back out into the night looking for the man-bear. He searches for hours and finally discovers the creature wreaking havoc in the lobby of the Marigold Hotel. The archer gets his attention with a boxing glove arrow, and then, after sparring with the brute, wraps him up in a cocoon arrow. Ali figures if the man-bear, who self-identifies as Ursus, is intelligent enough to speak, then he can reason and express himself, so Ali gives him a chance to explain why he's terrorizing resorts in the area. But Ursus breaks out of the cocoon arrow's binds and knocks Green Arrow out. When Ali comes to, he learns that Ursus broke into the hotel vault and made off with the staff payroll. Green Arrow pursues the beast and distracts him with a magnesium flare arrow. While Ursus is blinded, Green Arrow manages to stun him. Later, the man-bear is caged in the local jail cell, but Green Arrow is none the happier. He tells Dinah that Ursus isn't some random freak of nature. He's a man who was turned into a monster, and Ali promises to find out who is responsible. Dinah promises that she will help him unravel this mystery. And the story ends with the caption, The End? Hardly. We've only just scratched the surface of the man-bear mystery, reader. Join us as it continues on the page following in the Black Canary story which could only be titled, Hospital of Fear. Once again, the art team of Nasser and Austin turns out some gorgeous work, and I've got to start with their rendition of Dinah. To borrow a phrase from the irredeemable shag, she looks smokin' hot. She's not in her Black Canary costume in this chapter. Instead, I would call this her white fox look. And you know, 
bless the 1970s, because Dinah is dressed in white skin-tight bell-bottom jeans and a white sort of midriff-revealing halter top. It's basically a white bikini top. Her black hair goes down to her shoulders, and she's got a choker around her neck. Damn, she looks good. I'll make sure to post these pages on the blog. As for the rest of the art, Green Arrow looks good, he's on model. The Man Bear is really impressive in some of these panels. It's clear that he's not He's not totally a bear. His body and facial structure are different enough, but he still looks savage and terrifying. Looking at the script, you know, Jerry Conway, he gets the characters of this era. Ali is hard-headed and egotistical. He thinks he's loving and supportive of Dinah and doesn't understand why she snaps. It's obvious that Dinah is restless. She's been defined by her life as a florist and as Green Arrow's partner for most of her publication history, and she wants something new. I wholeheartedly embrace this desire, and I hope it plays out in the future. Oh, wait. This was 40 years ago. Yeah, she can run, but she doesn't get far. The man-bearer, Ursus, is more complicated than a typical werewolf. He's not rampaging and murdering innocent people because he's a feral beast. There is some intellect behind his blazing animal eyes. He can speak, he can reason, and he can rob a vault. Is he a man-made monster? Certainly looks that way. We'll need to read more to find out the truth. And that's what we're going to do right after this break. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go. Up! Up and away. Atomic batteries to turbines to speed. Roger. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. The second segment of this story, called Hospital of Fear, is also presented by Conway, Nasser, and Austin. It picks up with Dinah Lance, now in her Black Canary costume, spying a trio of suspicious men sneaking up to the wall of the county jail where Ursus is being held. Black Canary springs into action, pretty handedly whooping the three men. Unfortunately, she didn't notice one of them plant a shaped charge on the wall of the man-bear's cell. The explosive detonates, throwing Black Canary to the ground with a thundering concussive force. The jailbreakers, thanking their lucky timing, slip into the jail cell and drag the unconscious man-bear away. Canary is woken by the cops who tell her Ursus and his rescuers have escaped. When Dinah gets back to the lodge, she discovers that Green Arrow is gone. Ali left a note saying he was called back to Star City. So his whole righteous pledge to solve the mystery of the man-bear just four pages ago? Yeah, that's all forgotten. But don't worry, the Canary's got this. 
During her fight with the men, she overheard one of them drop the name Dolchek. Dinah does some digging and finds out that a criminal named Herman Dolchek was recently paroled and got a job at the hospital near the Marigold Hotel. Dinah goes to the hospital and asks the receptionist if a Herman Dolchek works there. The nurse directs her to the second floor, but Dolchek happened to be in the lobby and witnessed this exchange. So when Dinah goes up to the second floor, Dolchek gets the drop on her with a chloroform-soaked rag, knocking her unconscious. She wakes up, strapped to a gurney in an operating room. The three men she battled earlier stand vigil over her, dressed as orderlies. Ursus, the man-bear, is bolted to the wall, and in walks the mastermind, a villain who calls himself simply the Doctor. Interestingly, Dinah does not wake up dressed in the civilian outfit she wore when Dolchek jumped her. And she's not naked, either. She's dressed as Black Canary. The bad guys found her wig and her fishnets in her bag and decided to dress her up in costume, on the doctor's orders. Does this make any sense? Hell no. But we're nearing the climax of this story, and the hero has got to be in costume. Speaking of which, the doctor wears a modified short-sleeved surgical jacket, a surgical mask and cap, and dark glasses. It's not the most striking or memorable costume ever, but it does its job in that you look at it and you instantly think, medical, and bad guy. Simple enough. The doctor tells Dinah that Ursus will kill her. He villain monologues about how Ursus is half-man, half-beast, and while his beast is physically dominant, the creature still retains his humanity. That's why he hasn't killed anybody. But the doctor gives Ursus an injection that will suppress his human mind, driving the animal wild so that he savagely murders Black Canary. The injection does indeed drive the man-bear into a rage. He breaks free of his binds and attacks the doctor first. You know, because he's a bear and the doctor was closest. The three goons make a run for it, and Dinah frees herself from the gurney. Because the chloroform damaged her throat, Dinah can't use her canary cry against the man-bear. That means she has to engage him in physical combat. Their fight spills out into the hall where orderlies and patients witness the monster and call the police. Black Canary uses judo chops to the man-bear's neck to stagger him, and then she blasts him with a fire hose. The doctor regains consciousness and pulls a gun on Black Canary. Ursus, either wanting to protect Dinah for some reason, or simply wanting revenge against the doctor, charges the man, and they both go crashing through the window and falling to their deaths. In the epilogue, Black Canary learns from the sheriff that the so-called doctor wasn't actually a doctor, just an intern. And as such, he couldn't possess the medical genius to have created the man-bear. That means the true mastermind is still out there, and Canary is determined to find him and stop him. Hopefully, her commitment is a little stronger than Green Arrow's was last chapter. So, I liked Hospital of Fear a lot more than the Green Arrow chapter, in large part because we didn't have Green Arrow ruin everything with his talking and his thinking, Dinah handles herself well in two great action beats. Mike Nasser and Terry Austin give her some nice fight choreography, first when she's engaged with the jailbreakers, and later when she's fighting Ursus. Of course, by far the best-looking page in this story is when Dinah goes back to her room and strips off the Black Canary costume. We get to know her a tiny bit better on this page, and it looks great. They do a superb job of making her look gorgeous. What Jerry Conway does equally superbly is nail the compassion in Dinah. She really feels for the man-bear. She senses the pain and the inner conflict tormenting the creature. She doesn't believe for a moment that Ursus wants to kill her. 
The man inside has no control. That's why she doesn't go on the offensive during her fight, and she's saddened when he dies killing the doctor. She thinks, what a sick, sad waste, and her resolve to stop the real mad scientist comes directly from that fiery compassion. As for the new villain in the story, the new jailbird called the Doctor, he's okay, if easily disposable. Like I said, his appearance is easily identifiable, which is good, but it's not nearly as garish or enjoyable as Slingshot from last issue. The most interesting thing about the Doctor is his speech pattern. He has this broken speech interrupted by pauses, and it's weird. He says things like, considering the uh, fact that you will soon be uh, dead. I think Conway is trying to imitate a famous movie actor or character, but I can't tell who it is. I get a Peter Lorre for some reason, and a Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons in another case, so... Considering the uh, fact that you will soon be uh, dead. Or, considering the uh, fact that you will soon be uh, dead. In any event... This Doctor character would make a cool addition to the Arrow television series, so long as Jerry Conway got appropriately compensated for the creation. In future issues of World's Finest, Green Arrow would continue his pursuit of Slingshot, while Black Canary would stay on the hunt for the man responsible for the tragic life of the man-bear. And I will definitely be following these stories in future episodes of this podcast. Overall, these stories were enjoyable. Not Jerry Conway's best work, not by far, But the point is that even secondary or tertiary backup stories in this anthology comic were full of fun adventure and strong character moments. I doubt we'll see Ursus the Man-Bear pop up in Arrow or The Flash or Legends of Tomorrow, but if he does, that's all thanks to Jerry Conway. He's a damn good writer, and he was paid for his work at DC Comics. That's important. But Warner Brothers continues to use and profit from his creations in new media, Jerry Conway, and all the other creators, writers, artists, editors, they brought characters to life that new fans are falling in love with on television and film. And we want them to be rewarded for that. We want them to at least get the recognition, the respect, if not the hard cash. As Jerry himself pointed out, the legal obligation on the part of DC to compensate the creators of their live-action character may be vague, but the moral obligation is pretty cut and dry. It would be nice if DC Corporate stood up and paid out, not because of fan outrage and backlash, but because that's what a good person would do. And as we all know, corporations are people. So why not act like good people? As I mentioned at the top, this episode is part of Conway's Corner Crossover. To learn more about the great comics of Jerry Conway and the issue of Creator Equity, check out the following contributors to this event. The Superman and Batman Podcast, hosted by Michael Bradley with special guest Aaron Moss, looking at the Superman and Batman team-up from World's Finest, issue 269, and the Red Tornado story from the same issue. The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror Podcast, episode 48, hosted by Sean Engel with Chris Honeywell, Luke Giaconetti, Chris Tyler, and Jason Giaconetti, reviewing Tomb of Dracula, issue 1. Comic Book Time Machine, hosted by Ben Avery, covering the Superman-Spider-Man crossover. The Supermates Podcast, hosted by Chris and Cindy Franklin, with guest star Kyle Benning, reviewing Superman Family issues 186 and 187. The Hammer Podcasts, episode 12, hosted by Gene Hendricks and covering Thor issue 224. 
Task Force X podcast, episode 10, hosted by Aaron Moss, looking at Action Comics 521, as well as the Head Speaks podcast, episode 11, also hosted by Aaron Moss, which will cover Firestorm issues 1 and 2. The Quarterbin podcast, hosted by Professor Alan Middleton, reviewing Justice League of America issue 188. The Lantern Cast, episode 220, hosted by Chad Bokelman and Mark Marble, covering Brave and the Bold, issue 174, and Super Team Family, issue 12. Pop Culture Affidavit, hosted by Tom Panaris, reviewing Cinder and Ash, issues 1 through 4. King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, hosted by Kyle Benning, with guest Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine, looking at DC Special Series number 1. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 57, hosted by J. David Weeder, looking at Black Widow's history in Sting of the Widow. Hey Kids Comics, hosted by Andy and Michael Leyland, covering Amazing Spider-Man, issue 128. Also, check out From Kid to Flash, episode 18, hosted by Chris Ivey, as well as a future episode of Superman Forever Radio, hosted by Bob Fisher. Also, don't forget to check out the Between the Pages blog, which is going to cover a ton of sweet superhero stories from Jerry Conway. And, of course, the big one I already mentioned, you must check out Jerry Conway's interview on the Fire & Water podcast, hosted by Rob and Shag. That's episode 125. I'll be sure to provide links to all of these blogs and podcasts in the show notes for this episode. I'll also be promoting the show on Twitter using the hashtag ConwayCrossover. That's hashtag ConwayXOver. And I encourage all of my listeners to do the same. That's all this time. I'll be sure to include last week's listener comments in the next episode. In the meantime, you know the drill. If you enjoyed this episode, you can leave a comment on the blogger page, blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Twitter using the handle at blackcanaryfan or at ryandaily01. Or just search for the username Count Druncula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use, and I make no money off this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Send lawyers, guns, and money. 